We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Rest of season rankings as we head into week two. That's what we're going to be talking about today on Stealing Bananas. I'm Ben Gretsch. You can find me on Twitter at Yards Per Gretsch. Find my Substack at bengretsch.substack.com. And with me as always is Sean Siegel. You can find all of his work over at Rotoviz. Sean, how you doing? Awesome. We're closing in on week two. Uh, we had pretty good results in our main events. We have to decide what we want to do with some quarterback situations. Uh, with Matt Ryan being a disaster and Ryan Fitzpatrick getting hurt. We're still waiting on Trey Lance and Justin Fields, whom we believe will be stars for us over the second half of the season. We do emphasize that we're drafting with the idea that our teams will be dominant over the second half, and so it's good to get off to that fast start, right? Because (laughs) you can be as good as you want in the second half. Sometimes the leagues will have a points component. You can make up hundreds of points over the second half of the season, but we know a lot of listeners are – also drafting along with similar types of teams. Most of those leagues are probably based on win-loss. We're excited that you got some big performances from some of our guys in week one. Uh, Ben will be talking about where TJ Hawkinson moves up to, where DeAndre Swift moves up to. You and I selected CeeDee Lamb in the first round of a draft that we did after Thursday night. How high does he move? Where does Amari Cooper go, who actually scored quite a few more points than Lamb did? Uh, Are they now locked in to massive roles and massive scoring opportunities with Michael Gallup out. I'm excited to see and hear uh, kind of how you're changing your rankings as we go into to week two here. And, and more than anything, excited for the week. Yeah, absolutely. Me too. I mean, I, I don't actually do rankings, but I'm definitely excited to talk player value with you. Your your rest of season rankings are, are available for people at Rotovis, correct? Well, I'll be doing some articles at different times and we'll be taking our sort of redraft rankings down, but we'll have the dynasty rankings up so you can see kind of where I'm moving guys around, how I'm trying to play that. You and I have an RV Triflex Dynasty League team that we'll be making some adjustments on as we go through. We got some other great rankers. We talk about Blair Andrews all the time. Dave Cabin, who has created the advanced stats tool that I was really promoting in the last episode. It's been so much fun for me. I know it'll be fun for listeners and then curtis patrick one of the biggest names in the dynasty community uh he's got a great dynasty column for us he'll have his rankings there so uh, i think that that element of rotoviz is a lot of fun being able to have that but i do do some rest of season rankings sort of in these first couple of weeks they tend to be the most read articles because i mean let's face it ranking players is fun and it's kind of always 
interesting to see where people are after you just had the one game, right? We know that the overreactions happen at the same time. I was talking with Colin a little bit in the rest of season rankings that I did last year, where some of the guys I was high on who hit in week one, I'm like, I'm going to go ahead and, and move them to where I think they should be. Sometimes in the off season, it'll be a little bit conservative. Now, <laughs> listeners will be like, you had T Higgins in round two. You're not being very conservative, but you know, I don't want people drafting guys multiple rounds ahead of ADP if they don't need to. But once we see that they're going to do what we said they're going to do, I don't have a problem moving them up into the range that I kind of felt like they should have been anyway. Last year with Ridley, that worked out. He had a big season. DeAndre Hopkins, it worked out. He had a big season. Will Fuller, you know, goes on in his wide receiver seven right up until he gets suspended. So, you know, we have all that drama to deal with. But Stephon Diggs, we felt like he was going to be good. He skyrockets up. He was a first-round pick this year. You know, where are our guys that we think are first rounders now that maybe we were excited about? They had a big game. Is this a trap in any situation? And now that we've had a week to think about it, and now we no longer get to bank these huge points. One of the things that happened in that draft that we did after Thursday night, we had Lamb, we had Gronkowski, we took a little bit of trash talk on the message board for taking Gronkowski, but we did finish with the second most points in week one, and that was big. Now we're off to a fast start. Any regrets that we took those guys now that it's a week later and we don't have points to bank? No, not really. I mean, we didn't go that high with Gronk. I thought that was kind of a silly comment that, that we caught and chatted about a little bit. I got a comment. One of the responses or, or messages that, I mean, I, I got a lot this week. One, one that I got that I thought was pretty interesting was from a longtime reader. It said that they heard our Sunday night show and thought it was interesting that we changed a lot of our our takes or we had some had some different takes after one week and that person's opinion was that we maybe shouldn't have sounded so sure sure in the preseason which i think is very funny because you know not not in a rude way but because i feel like we couch a lot of what we say i think i couch a lot of what i say in uncertainty but there is this element where you know it, it made me immediately think of the thing frank used to say uh strong opinions weekly help right and so we had strong opinions in the offseason about player value, about their potential ranges of outcomes, about ways their seasons could go. We also knew that there's a lot of stuff we weren't going to know when, when the season happened. There's all sorts of chaos that happens. A lot of things that happened in week one told us not for sure that things are going to be a certain way, but whether or not some of those bunch of different scenarios that we thought were possible are more likely or less likely than we did before. We talked in, in the last episode this week about Mike Williams. I was very excited about his upside after seeing what happened in week one. I thought he had a pretty wide range. To see him come out and have the type of game where he had everything in his upside portfolio that I was hoping for a, you know, a positive spin on that player would come to pass, to see that all happen right away in week one, to me was, okay, now his value is way different. I think we do need to be holding those those opinions weekly that that maybe they were strong before because they are these range of outcomes type opinions. And so we saw a lot this week for some players, it's not going to change anything. It's pretty close to what we thought was the most likely scenario. But this is all the data we have right now. And I do think you need to react and respond accordingly. You, it, there's no certainty that any of this is going to stick, but it does change what is most likely now going forward. And that, I think, is a very important note. Yeah, when we talk a lot about zero RB being humility-based drafting, and one of the reasons why we draft so many receivers is, number one, we don't know for sure who's going to be the stars, and we don't know who's going to be hurt, right? And so already, if you have a true zero RB team and you had Jerry Judy, you can weather that. And if you have a more traditional team, you're in deep trouble. 
And so some of those things are going to happen or are going to move through. I guess I, it's interesting to hear that that takeaway from the Sunday night show. In some ways, I feel like we may have understated some of the changes that we think. I know. I didn't know exactly what it maybe was in reference to. I didn't get a chance to reply, actually, because I, I saw that note while I was writing Stone Signals. But I, I had the same thought, Sean. I was like, I, I wonder what this is about. I, I actually want to reach back out and find that out because I'm kind of curious. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's always great to get that kind of interaction and uh, get a feel for, you know, how people are listening, how people are reading. Uh, you know, if there are things we can do better, definitely do those. But also if just there are things that are interesting from a communication perspective to do those. So one of the people that we did talk about on the Sunday night show and may have been something, well, one of the things that that I did this off season is move Harris around a number of different times because it was he's a tricky guy to get a read on. And in my Zero RB watch list article, I kind of went into that in some detail. Now, one of the things that is for the, both the good and the bad is that if you change your ranking on someone kind of in the middle of draft season, then you're guaranteed to be both wrong and right. And so yeah. that's not necessarily good or bad. It's just kind of the case. I and mean, it's not something where you're going to just stick with what you had and be wrong even though, I mean, because some of your listeners and readers are still drafting and you want them to know where they are now. When you go back and look at it and you're like, people will tell you you're wrong or you're right. It's like, well, you know, at what point were you looking at that ranking? But then in week one, kind of what we saw was both sides of the equation, right? Where he has a pretty decent EP profile. I mentioned in that article, kind of went into a little more depth about how I just, I think there are so many comparisons to Trent Richardson and Le'Veon Bell. Both, I mean, they went on to different careers, very different overall careers, but the rookie season is pretty similar in that they had these great workloads but weren't very efficient. And I think that's what's going to happen in Pittsburgh. One of the things that made me change that a little bit is that there were some negative things that happened for Antonio Gibson, who I felt like was the other pick in that range. I was uh, interested to hear where you are on sort of Austin Eckler and Antonio Gibson. Eckler has that goal line touchdown early, and immediately you're thinking, okay, well, this changes everything about where he is and his profile and people who drafted him in round one, maybe that'll pay off people who drafted him in round two. Maybe they'll get, you know, just this amazing league winning performance, but then the rest of the game, I think was an unmitigated disaster, right? I mean, he did not have the receptions that he needs and Joe Lombardi worries me. I've, I've written several times about his tenure in Detroit raised a lot of red flags and so if he's going to use you know mike williams the usage great uh austin eckler the usage at the goal line encouraging you've got to keep that going and we look at like anthony lynn going to detroit and all of a sudden you know those running backs have these massive target numbers now we know that garbage time plays into that to an extent but deandre swift is getting a ton of targets early i mean everything about how they played it was kind of how we expected and then the other person i mentioned in there antonio gibson he maybe had the most important and impressive week one that maybe was a little bit under the radar because Washington didn't score a lot of points and Ryan Fitzpatrick was hurt, but Gibson really looked back to what people, you know, like Pat were saying most of the off season where this guy is ready to make the jump. I think that he's someone you have to move up. Yeah. So I, I was optimistic on Eckler and stealing signals, pretty optimistic. I, I think the zero targets is kind of fluky. I think, you know, I called it one of my biggest noises of the week because he did run 25 routes. He ran routes on 51% of dropbacks. That's probably not quite as high as all of his numbers last year. I didn't go back and look in. And in fact, I would say almost certainly not as high as his typical route rate. It's probably up in the 16, 70%. But running backs don't run routes on 80% or more 
So him being at 51%, still pretty solid, ran 25 routes. I don't expect that if he's running that many routes that he's not going to get targets most weeks. I think that was a pretty fluky outcome. Now, it, what some of the things you're saying about Lombardi, yeah, they, they resonate with me. They're a little concerning. I maybe hadn't considered that as much. What I will note about his, his green zone work, not only did he get that touchdown in the on the first drive, he got three more green zone carries, carries inside the 10, on three more different drives, four different carries inside the 10, and four different drives. Sometimes we see guys get four carries on the same drive, and then you don't necessarily know if that guy's going to get that work going forward. Eckler's the guy that one of the biggest parts of his profile was whether or not he's going to get that those high-value touches in close and potentially get those touchdowns. The fact that he got four rush attempts in there and four different drives, they didn't pull him out at any point. They used Roundtree as the number two, but they weren't using Roundtree in close. I thought that was very positive. I thought that was a very promising thing. I don't know that any of those were right at the goal line, so maybe it could be different right at the goal line. But the fact that he's getting carries anywhere inside the 10-yard line is pretty darn promising, I think. And, and so I was optimistic. I was saying, look, I think Eckler's going to catch plenty of passes, and the fact that he is going to – looks like really – you know th- that can shift, but really looks like the lead back in terms of their their potential touchdown you know uh, touches. Not even a split with Roundtree, but like the lead guy is I, I think was a huge note for him, much in the way that you said the receiving was a huge note for Gibson. I went back and did dig into the routes per game last year for, for Gibson and McKissick. McKissick averaged 25 routes per game last year. Gibson was down at 13 and a half, basically just slightly more than half as many routes as McKissick. In week one, Gibson only ran 13 routes, right about his average last year. They didn't drop back a ton. They went very run heavy after uh, Fitzpatrick got hurt. I think some of that probably you haven't practiced with Heineke yet. They're going to do some things different going forward. They're going to have to figure it out. They weren't expecting that injury. Gibson's 13 routes, though. McKissick only ran nine. So it wasn't necessarily unheard of last year for Gibson to run more routes than McKissick, but the fact that he did in week one right away, McKissick really not involved, and McKissick was basically double the routes last year. I agree. I think that was very positive for Gibson. He gets five targets on those 13 routes. He gets 20 carries. He gets all of the early down work. No concerns really with Jarrett Patterson, who we really liked in preseason and thought could be a guy that could cut into his role. Patterson plays very sparingly, gets two carries. I thought both of those guys came out of that Washington-LA game with improved notes on their profile. And Ben, you mentioned uh, some of those things with Eckler that were more promising. One of the things I mentioned in the Zero RB Watch is that just because someone came out and had sort of this weird zero target game doesn't mean that all of a sudden there's no chance that they'll be involved. The Lombardi thing is a concern, but Eckler in the last three years kind of leading into this game did have five different games where he was at zero or one targets. He actually only had one target last season in week one and went on to average 9.7 receiving EP per game. So we know that it's not impossible at all for him to come back and look good from that perspective. The other thing with Gibson, and this is something that we just kind of expect from him, but I do think it's good to see is that, I mean, he was electric, right? One of the things about Gibson, he's one of the most athletic backs in the NFL and also one of the lesser experienced backs. Now he got tons of experience last year as an NFL rookie, played well, but to see him look that fast on a week where, you know, there were running backs, you know, like an Ezekiel Elliott, you know, like a Najee Harris, even like a Joe Mixon who did some other positive things where they look slow when they get into space. That's not the case for Antonio Gibson. Uh, He was one of the top 
eight guys in terms of evasion percentage, unlike some of the players that we talked about on the previous episode where they broke some tackles, they created some missed tackles, and then didn't go anywhere. Antonio Gibson, 2.5 yards after contact. He's one of these guys where he averaged 4.6 in game one. We know that's going to bounce around week to week, but Antonio Gibson sets up as a guy, number one, to create big plays, and then those big plays lead to a situation where your running back touches are just a little bit more efficient. Absolutely. You you teased on this episode that we were going to talk uh, TJ Hawkinson and DeAndre Swift. Where would you rank Swift right now? Because th- those are both clear risers. We got a lot of passing late from the Lions, but early in the game, in the first half, it was Hawkinson and Swift. They they had, I believe, seven and five targets. No other Lion had more than three. The Lions receivers combined for only four first-half targets. One of the guys who had three was Jamal Williams as well. So we saw a lot of running back targets. We saw a lot into the second half, both of uh, – of Swift and Jamal Williams got nine high value touches this week, which was huge. They were tied for second most on the week t- with each other. <laughs> I don't expect that that high of a number every week, but this hypothesis that the passing game would flow through Hawkinson and then also the running backs seemed to be pretty true. All of the receiving work was late when they got a lot of those extra possessions after the onside kick. So I, yeah, I'm extremely bullish now on Hawkinson. We saw exactly what we thought. Swift is the other one you had to, I think, ride. He looked so you just talked about Gibson looking explosive. Swift looked so explosive again. And we saw that all last year. And that was one of the things that I didn't quite understand about where he's being drafted, right? Because we know that he's going to get a ton of receptions and he is going to be one of the three or four most dynamic backs in the NFL. So it's a question of, you know, how much of his draft slide is injury related, how much of it is related to the Detroit offense and Jared Goff. We had talked about how the biggest question coming coming into the season with the Lions was, would they compete? You know, would they try and win? Would they go after it? Just how bad would Jerry Goff be? And in the first week, we saw kind of what what we had expected, which was Goff didn't look good, but he did try. He did attack. You know, he wasn't shy throwing the ball around. Not all of his passes to receivers were particularly accurate, but he was able to find Swift. He was able to find Hawkinson, and the Lions didn't go away. And so, yeah, I mean, they're going to have a ton of garbage time. That's going to be great for those two guys. And so... Hawkinson is someone who is in my second round in terms of dynasty rankings. I think he was kind of the most important guy to get in startups this year where you're going to get this tight end who's the next Kelsey, the next Kittle. Uh, Swift somebody, you know, we kind of joked about. I mean, it's it's fun to make the bold predictions, but the bold predictions have this underlying thread of, well, you know, we think that the market is wrong. We talked about how, I mean, Swift was my 105 for 2022 drafts. And already, I think if we redrafted, I think he'd probably go with the one-two turn. I mean, you'd have to consider him in that range. So there's still the questions about the groin and if that pops back up. If it does, it can derail his season in a heartbeat. If it doesn't, there are so many backs who went ahead of him who simply cannot do what he can do from an athletic perspective and can't do what he can do from a profile perspective. And so I'm really glad, at least for a week where he makes it through healthy, that we have him on the team. I mean, his stock is, is skyrocketing. Yeah, we, the health stuff, some of the, the weird off-field stuff, if, if none of that comes to pass, it, like I, I think I can say pretty confidently right now, and it sounds very much like you agree and perhaps are even higher, that if, if he plays 17 games, if he stays on the field this entire season, he's going to be a top 10 back. He's probably going to be a top five back. I mean, like he's going to catch enough passes. He's going to do enough explosive things throughout the season. He's absolutely a guy that you have to be stoked to have on any roster that you have him. Daryl Henderson, another really interesting one, played almost every snap. Sony Michelle, like what committee? There was no Sony Michelle. We didn't see that from Henderson even early last year 
when he got some run. They still were using Malcolm Brown on passing downs. And then late in the year, Akers did get the three-down workload. And so it felt like there was something about Henderson that they didn't feel comfortable turning over this big role to him that certainly wasn't the case in week one. It wasn't. And Curtis had a, a great article on this for Road of his, sort of his must-draft back of the season. That was before the Michelle trade, but a lot of these things are now very true. Of course, all you need to have happen is to have a couple of bad plays for these guys who are a little more fragile. So you have the Tyson William miss block, and suddenly they're like, okay, well, you're extremely impressive. The speed and the burst that he was showing, that long touchdown run, Latavius Murray and these other guys that they've signed, they can't do that. He, 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 watching Latavius Murray get those extra snaps later was – it was like, wow, he's a lot slower than Tyson Williams. And the guys they have behind that are even slower yet, right? So, I mean, it seems like it has to be Williams, and yet – the unfortunate part is we do get these reminders all the time about how fragile some of these things can be. Henderson made some mistakes last year that got him into a committee. And then he had some injuries with the mistakes that get him to where he's way behind acres. The Rams made the trade for Michelle because they want another back that they can count on. They want that kind of Latavius Murray guy. And, you know, a game or two down the line, Henderson makes a mistake or gets dinged up. Michelle's going to go in there and is going to have some value. So I don't think that that's, an issue, but kind of in the zero RB update, when those guys got closer together in value, kind of went back and said, look, I mean, Henderson now is the clear guy that you want. I mean, you don't want Michelle now that they've gotten close. Michelle was someone you needed to have before the trade occurred or someone that you add through, you know, a free agent bid. It's not somebody that you draft at that point. And I think that that's what we saw. The other thing is just a reminder of how dynamic Henderson is. I mean, he's one of the best college players ever. He's someone who does create the long runs. We talk about that from time to time because I think that that is something that gets left out of the conversation is that these backs who can create the big runs, they don't necessarily need as many touches. They can create some touchdowns for you. And there's at least that balance between the coach has to kind of decide. It's like, am I going to go to someone who is that much weaker play by play in order to have a little bit more safety? You hope that they don't do that. Henderson looks like he, he could be a great value for drafters at this point. Colin Kelly here, the executive producer of the Road of His Radio Podcast Network and co-host of the Road of His Overtime Podcast, along with the phenomenal Sean Siegel. The wait is over, the NFL season is here, and there's no better time than the present to sign up for a Road of His NFL Pass. You'll get access to all of our content, all of our tools, and everything you need to help you for that in-season success. As a loyal podcast listener, you can get yourself a 10% discount to a Road of His NFL Pass just by adding the code RVRADIO2021 at checkout. Go to rotaviz.com forward slash podcast for more information. Let's go get those championships. I hope you enjoy the podcast. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. 
And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You and I took him on one team. I'm very stoked about that. I think he's somebody you had to be rising in your rising, raising in your uh, rankings. Kenneth Gainwell, guy, you got really, I mean, you were on probably all throughout, got me on more, especially late in the draft season. I was concerned about the early Boston Scott stuff. You mentioned on a show, maybe on Sunday night show, how, you know, that never really, it never really got out there that, that Gainwell was doing a lot more in camp later. That's something I, I certainly had missed. That that I was not expecting Gainwell to come out and be one of only two backs and Scott to not play at all. It, so, it sounds, especially based on our final drafts, like you were much more aware of that possibility. But the fact that they only used two backs, the fact that Boston Scott only played on special teams, and he was active, and he was playing on special teams, but he did not get a single snap in the offense, I thought was so, so positive for Kenneth Gainwell in a backfield that we thought might be a three-way split. It was very clearly a two-way split. And it was also a little bit more lucrative than I expected as well. Some passes to the backs. You talked about how, when you were talking about Gainwell about uh, during draft season, about how Nick Sirianni might play it a little more straight up and have J- uh, Jalen Hurts play a little bit more of a traditional offense. They did some really exciting things. We talked about that all on Sunday. But Gainwell especially, some of these these short passes especially, I mean, we saw that from Hurts. Uh, Hurts' uh, average intended air yards was the lowest of any quarterback in week one. At least that was true on Monday. I assume it's true on on after the Monday Night Football as well because those guys were throwing it around. It looks like there's going to be a lot of short passes in this offense, and, and Gainwell could have a really nice role. I mean, standalone value plus potential injury upside as well, right? I mean, that's a that's fantastic. And one of the things that I think gets lost every once in a while when we look at these rushing quarterbacks and how there are some negatives. You know, they don't pass to the running backs as much. That's a problem. But that was maybe the most exciting thing is that we could get the best of both worlds here, right? If they actually do pass to the running backs and they create this kind of offense where it's more difficult to focus on them. Some of this is just going to come out to be, I think, that the Atlanta Falcons are absolutely terrible. But you look at the Eagles and Miles Sanders, 3.1 yards before contact 
only hit at the line of scrimmage 26% of the time. Kenneth Gainwell, 2.8 yards before contact, only hit at the line of scrimmage 11% of the time. Now, we know that we're talking about a very small sample, but the point is that these guys are able to get into space, and I think that that is sometimes underrated. Blair and I talk a lot about how the yards before contact element is almost as important as the yards after contact in terms of what it can tell you often either about the role or the back's ability to simply get to the hole. I mean, both of those things are elements of a running back's profile. Uh, Blair's got a cool article out talking about how the yards before contact is much more stable for backs than it is for offenses. And, you know, that's intuitive in a way because running backs are used differently and that's going to create a different situation than what you get for the overall offense in terms of yards before contact. But, you know, sometimes people who have these yards before contact get knocked down because people think, well, it just needs to all be the part that their running back does when in fact, if backs are going to have an overall efficient season, if they're going to take these running back attempts and get into the secondary and create big plays because of either their strengths or the offense's strengths and structure, that's very positive. And the thing that we saw in week one is that both of these guys have the juice to benefit from the scheme that the Eagles are running. And so, yeah, I, I love what they're doing. It'll be tricky. I mean, there are going to be some weeks where uh, maybe you start one of these guys, especially starting Miles Sanders, you know, you could lose out to Gainwell. But overall, I mean, this is about as positive as week one could have possibly gone for the Eagles. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one player I moved up, and it's kind of a small move, and I don't know if you have any thoughts on this, but Cooper Cup ran routes on 100% of dropbacks. Robert Woods was at 67%, something we've seen from the Ram Rams in prior seasons is that cup will sometimes get his routes sort of cut back a little bit in different game situations, different packages for whatever reason woods almost never did. And so the fact that he was at 67% and they had Higby, I mean, I don't know, did he get banged up? I didn't see anything, but like they had Higby up above 80% routes. They had van Jefferson up above 80% routes. And it looked like van and cup maybe are now these like two receivers and woods is the one that they're sort of rotating out a little bit. That is so important because Cup was as productive as Woods, even when his routes were a little bit lower. He was better on a targets per route run basis, a little bit better of a player. People love Woods more because he gets some of these rush attempts. He did get one, but Cup's is, Cup is probably, or I would say, I, I believe, is the better receiver in terms of a fantasy receiver, in terms of earning volume, in terms of being productive on it. He was clearly in this game. And now that he potentially is also running more routes, and you talk about the fact that he can earn targets at a higher route, that huge gap where he had 10 targets, Woods had maybe four, Cup had way more production, Woods did end up getting a TD, that huge gap in their in their volume, I think, if Cup's running more routes, is going to continue to be there. We might actually see a gap in their production like we have it in past seasons. Those are interesting notes. Uh, you know, We saw the big play from Cup. One of the things that I was concerned about for both guys at their price, I'm not concerned about them as reality players at all. <laughs> I mean, they're going to be very good. But at the price that they were going in drafts was just that Jefferson and Deshaun Jackson, who didn't factor in quite as much to this game, that with the vertical ability of Matthew Stafford, and that's really where he thrives, right? I and mean, he's not this incredibly dynamic and accurate underneath passer. You have to understand where people are strong. But if you can get cut deep some, which is not something we've necessarily seen in the past, then again, you have a little bit more upside there. I was concerned. I think that there was reason to be concerned. We even saw in week one how the vertical passing could take some volume away from either Cup or Woods. In week one, that was definitely Woods. So we'll, we'll kind of have to look and see how that develops in week two, if that was sort of a one-week fluke or if it is a trend. We've seen Woods go through 
stretches in the past, really one very serious stretch where he didn't score for a long time. I wouldn't expect that to happen in 2021, but there is a risk, I think, in this offense that it's not as concentrated as it was in the past. And even if the pie is larger, which I mean, Matthew Stafford did some things that may have to make Rams fans extremely excited, right? I mean, and we know that he has the big arm. But if this combination of Stafford and McVay works out as well as it worked in week one, it'll probably raise the floors to the extent and the ceilings. So we won't have to worry about that split. But yeah, I mean, if it continues with this trend that you mentioned with Cup, I mean, he's, he's going to definitely pay off. And so it'll be interesting to see how the Rams continue to perform because if the offense clicks like that, I mean, you mentioned Henderson. We've got some Henderson. I mean, we could see some 30-point games from him within the context of how well this team is going to move the ball. So I'm pretty excited about that. Ben, one of the people, as we kind of wrap up here that we should discuss is someone who I think everybody who selected Saquon Barkley was doing it for the second half. And as people ranked Barkley and as they discussed Barkley, they're saying, okay, it's not a play for the first couple of weeks. And yet what happened in week one is sort of what we expected. And yet it can't help but be something where it's also scary. And I think whether you were drafting him or not drafting him, there's this tendency to move him down a little bit after that performance, even though it's exactly what we thought was going to happen. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think the key thing is he just wasn't very necessarily explosive or gaining a lot of yards. He did get 10 of the 14 rush attempts. Uh, he ran more routes than Devonte Booker who basically played as a one for one backup. You do think his snaps are going to increase. And then the fact that he was basically getting most of the running back work would be a very positive going forward, a very positive situation going forward. They were in, you know, a trailing script, right. And so they didn't run the ball a ton overall anyway tough defense in Denver there's a lot of reason you know a lot of excuses and things that we can make and talk about but I think the, w- the way that I put it in stealing signals the way that I am trying to think about it is even though he was sort of held back by the offense it was a tough matchup I mean the offense not being very productive and so he didn't get any like necessarily like potential to to score a short touchdown or any of these things I do think that most weeks I expect Saquon Barkley to do more than he did with 10 carries and three targets and I think that's what I'll actually expect going forward and also that we should see those those numbers rise. We should see the 10 carries and three targets rise. But also the 10 carries and three targets should have been enough. And the fact that he didn't do enough is probably a little – or didn't do much of anything. It's probably a little bit fluky. Yeah, both a little bit fluky and a little bit concerning. You know, we talk about some of the sort of hilarious numbers. Uh, he was only stuffed 10% of the time. But even with that, he had 0.9 yards before contact, only 1.7 after. That adds up to a very paltry 2.6, which, again, people just even looking at the game and looking at the uh, normal box score are going to be able to have a sense of what he did there. We talked about on Sunday, my biggest concern is just that this is a garbage time team. And if he's going to be out to protect him during that stretch, which from a rally perspective is exactly the right decision. It's exactly the right decision. So you can't like be screaming at the TV, put Barkley in to get himself hurt when you guys are down three touchdowns. But from a fantasy perspective, we do need some of those points, right? That's where a lot of these receptions will come from. We look at how Detroit piled on some of the receptions late. We need them to do that to Barkley, and we need Daniel Jones to be a little more accurate with some of his attempts there. Barkley did get a an end zone target 
So, you know, something from that perspective to be encouraged about. Now, there were two defenders standing between him and Jones. When the ball was <laughs> so it was kind of a low Do we call that a target or do we chalk that one up to the two defenders? <laughs> right. So anyway, but, but some good and bad things there. I think, Ben, the other guy who we're kind of looking at from a receiver perspective, we know obviously Ayuk is, is dropping in the short term. You know, he may go back up. The problem, I think, for Ayuk is that I was hoping that we would get Ayuk and Samuel points in this time period before Lance and then after that I think they'll still do okay but it'll be lesser I think the offense will change if you're actually going to have Ayuk kind of in the doghouse and maybe not 100% healthy we have the hamstring injury during the time period where Jimmy Garoppolo is you know hopefully airing it out then that's a dagger for redraft value having had a couple more days now to kind of think through it and let the visceral reaction to what the Falcons did kind of wash out a little bit we know that the eight targets for Pitts is okay. I talked about in my Monday column that the eight targets for Calvin Ridley, uh, that's the below any target number that he had over the second half of last season. Nine was the lowest during that stretch where he was very high volume in terms of targets. That's unfortunate in, an, in a game where they were trailing. I mean, if you're not going to get targets in a game where you know, you're losing the whole way, then it's hard to think of a game script that's going to be better than that. And yet, as I let this game sink in, I'm like, the Falcons are going to make adjustments. Calvin Ridley is still going to be good. Pitts and Ridley are going to end up with pretty good target volume as the season goes along. Yeah, I mean, it, it was really interesting to see the pass rate over expectation numbers. Um, I saw them from, from Mike Leone, and he had Atlanta very low in that regard. That's concerning with Arthur Smith taking over. That's been a, a positive point for Atlanta, that they will throw the ball. I, I do think that that has to change. Everything went poor for them. I don't think they're going to – just continue to try to pound the rock with Mike Davis at three yards a carry or get Cordero Patterson, those eye formation carries that we were laughing about on, on Sunday night at such a high degree that they're way below expectation and pass rate. Um, so I'm right there with you. And especially as this game got out of hand, you know, that it, it, it was a, it was a poor debut for Atlanta. But it can only go up from here. It can only go up from here. Sean, you mentioned you teased in the last show your your potential top five. You, you said maybe Christian McCaffrey, the tight ends, Tyreek Hill. How would you rank the top of of the? You know, we, we did call this a rest of season rankings. We're just talking about player value, so let's give let's give the people some rankings. How would you rank the top of drafts if you were drafting for rest of season today? I'm going to go Christian McCaffrey, Travis Kelsey, Darren Waller. I mean, if there's someone who's going to challenge Christian McCaffrey, though, it does look like it could be Darren Waller. And then uh, to Tyreek Hill. Hill was the guy that we ended up drafting the most, in part because he was in the right spot there. We were kind of looking away from Devontae Adams because of when the bye was. But I just felt, based on looking at the several years leading up to this, and then the adjustments that the Chiefs had made, including we talked a lot about Hardman, but I, I mean, he's going to be someone who is still, I think, a shot guy. This offense is going to be so good and it's going to run so completely through the two stars that, I mean, they were drafted with that in mind, but I think you can move Hill up even further. Now you have the 37 point game in week one, you have the 75 yard touchdown. You're not going to have a 75 yard touchdown every week, but he scored a ton of points outside of that play. Even if you take away the 75 yard touchdown, I mean, he's in that 20 point range where you're like, okay, this is a receiver who could compete with the running backs. And if you have that, you need to take it in round one because it sets you up to be in such better shape. After him, I am going to go with Alvin Kamara. I'm a little bit concerned about the overall pass volume in that offense, but 
if it's more normal, then Camara's targets sort of scale up in a way that make him still look like what we were talking about in the last couple of weeks. And then Dalvin Cook, uh, Blair talking about it in his zero RB watch list. The zero RB watch list for anybody listening who hasn't subscribed, uh, we look at all the running backs, right? Because every workload is important. You need to understand the stars if you want to understand how the rest of the players fit in. Uh, Cook was close to that EP double-double that is just so important. I don't think that's necessarily going to be sustainable, but there is that uh, possibility for the slight change in the offense that gets him more involved again. If he's a double-double EP guy, then you know he's going to be able to pay off his number two overall pick, which is where he was most of the season. So that's how I would draft it to start. I would come in with Stefan Diggs right after that. Do you have anybody different there, or who should we be looking at as we continue to wrap around? Well, I, yeah, I think the tight ends and Hill being that high are the interesting point because I, I think you can have positive notes about Cook and Kamara. Kamara, we, we know that the Packers like to ask teams to run against them, and they got the, the Saints got up to a massively positive script. They weren't going to necessarily push Jameis Winston if they didn't have to. You know, Winston did throw a pick they got, that got called back by a very, very questionable roughing the passer. There's probably some concern that they're going to be very run heavy. At the same time, this was like the exact type of script and scenario where they weren't going to need to throw. They only threw 20 passes, and Kamara was mostly fine from a receiving perspective. And everything you say about Cook, very positive as well. I, it would be hard for me to not take them two and three. At the same time, it's very hard for me to say that I'm lower than you on Kelsey, Waller, or Hill because everything you said is true. Hill should be the wide receiver one. I was very, very optimistic about Diggs. I remained very optimistic. I talked in ceiling – Signals that they took some deep shots. He had 150 air yards. His yards per reception very low. Uh, we talked on Sunday night that you know the Steelers were talking on the broad, uh, broadcast about keying in on Diggs a little bit. At the same time, what Hill did was just different. I mean, I think Diggs is going to have a monster year, and I think Hill's just going to be that much better. We, we, we talked about how good these top receivers were. I think Adams bounces back too and would be right there as well. But I, I would go Hill, Diggs, Adams at receiver, and Hill – above you know in, in that range with the with the the camara and cook i think that is a tier certainly those guys in those top two tight ends the way you have it maybe i'd do it a little different how i'd arrange it just because cook and camara did look great too but man i don't know maybe maybe i'll just do it the way you did it a couple of guys that we haven't gone into a lot of detail about but were sort of controversial second and even third round picks at running back nick chubb joe mixon they both score a ton of points are you moving them up if you're drafting today not moving Chubb up too much. He was very, very good, but there is still that concern. Like this was a ceiling game. He had multiple touchdowns. They had four rushing TDs. There's a lot of positive stuff about their offense. Maybe he just has an absolutely monster rushing season, but the ceiling is a lot harder at that position. He needs to basically average one and a half touchdowns per game or something like that. Maybe he does that, but the two touchdowns in week one, he's not going to be able to do that every single week. Mixon, I'm moving up a little. The, the workload was, was huge, but... I don't know. There's still some concerns there. The other one we didn't talk about was Jonathan Taylor. And I, I, I think Taylor's routes and his targets and his receiving volume and the receiving volume for the whole the whole of the backs in, in Indianapolis, because Hines got plenty of receptions as well, was very, very positive. And I think we have to think very optimistically about Taylor as well. I think I would sell Taylor as the next running back as the RB4 coming off the board. And that's where I had him in my rankings, I believe, and the only reason to kind of mix up the exposures a little bit were number one, Carson Wentz, which they kind of worked through in week one, and then number two, the buy situation. And so that is something that still fouls up some of these FFPC leagues that we 
do a lot, but from a, a pure scoring perspective, I think that's exactly right. Uh, to kind of uh, hammer home your point on the Browns and why number one, we should be excited about them, but number two, we've got to be a little bit skeptical. I mean, they combine for 18.5 fantasy points over expectation. We know that they're going to be efficient. Nick Chubb set a new uh, personal best last season where he averaged four points over expectation, but those are huge numbers. Even I mean, even four points over expectation to do that per game. I mean, you're talking about an absolute superstar who's kind of hitting on all cylinders and getting some of those touchdowns. The 10, obviously, he's not going to do. Kareem Hunt averaged actually at 8.5 expected points. And despite the massive score, it's actually a little bit of a red flag for him. And so he might be someone to sell high this week. Ben, unfortunately, we have to wrap it up. But uh, it's been fun kind of being able to, to pick your brain and, and find out where you are on these guys after the first week. I can't wait for another game. And I can't wait for our, our Sunday night talk. That was That was so much fun. Yeah, week two is going to be a blast. We're going to get a bunch more information. We're going to have these uh, strong opinions loosely held, uh, weekly held again. And we'll be back next week with completely brand new opinions on everything. <laughs> exactly right. Exactly right. So uh, thanks for listening. That'll do it for today's episode of Ceiling Bananas. I'm Sean Siegel. Uh, with me, as always, is Ben Gretsch, whom you can follow at Yards Per Gretsch. Make sure you subscribe to Ceiling Signals if we haven't sold you on it yet. Uh, then... I don't know. There may be a little bit of an issue there. So it, hopefully we can also get you at Rotoviz. We love having you there as a reader. If you want to save a little bit of money, you can use the code RVRADIO2021 at checkout for a 10% discount. Please uh, leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast app and subscribe to the feed. You'll get Stealing Bananas faster than any other way if you do that for us. So uh, we'll see you soon. Have fun until then. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.